Here is one of a series of talks by spiritual leader Lola McDowell Lee, spanning two decades from the early 70s through the 90s. Lola was a Zen Roshi, whose Rinzai lineage included Dr. Henry Plutov and renowned Zen master Shigetsu Sasaki. Lola was a religious scholar as well as an ordained Christian minister. While the talks are focused mainly on Zen and Buddhism, Lola drew on many spiritual traditions, including those of Jesus, Plato, Lao Tzu, the Hindu Vedas, Meister Eckhart, and Gurdjieff. Well, I suppose <clears throat> I forgot to wish you all a day after Happy Valentine's Day. <laughs> I'm going to read you a little story from Chuang Tzu. Now, Chuang Tzu <clears throat> was um, a man of Tao who came after and was a student of Lao Tzu. And this one goes, Duke Huan of Qi was first in his dynasty, and he sat under a canopy reading his philosophy. Fien, the wheelwright, was out in the yard making a wheel. Fien laid aside the hammer and the chisel and climbed the steps and said to Duke Juan, may I ask you, Lord, what is this that you are reading? And the Duke answered, with the experts, the authorities. <clears throat> so Fien asked him, dead or alive? And the Duke answered, dead a long time. Then said the wheelwright, you are then reading only the dirt that they have left behind. And the duke replied, what do you know about it? You're only a wheelwright. You had better give me a good explanation or else you die. So this little wheelwright said, let us look at the affair from my point of view. When I make wheels, if I go easy, they fall apart. If I am too rough, they do not fit. But if I am neither too easy nor too violent, they turn out right. The work is just what I want it to be. You cannot really put this into words. You have to know how it is. I cannot even tell my own son exactly how it's done. <clears throat> and my own son cannot learn it from me. So here I am, 70 years old, still making wheels. The men of old took what they really knew with them to the grave. And so, Lord, what you are reading there is only the dirt that they left behind. Yeah. <clears throat> Uh, on, a, on a back road you know, out in the country. See, everybody has a picture immediately. Back road out in the country. 
this motorist was running, riding along, and uh, his car began to sputter and spew, you know, so he pulled off on the side of the road to see what the trouble was. And uh, he got out of the car, and he opened the hood, and he looked inside, he looked around, and suddenly he heard a voice. And uh, his voice said, if you ask me, I can tell you what the trouble is. And he was very surprised because he thought he was all alone. And he looked around, all around, and there was nobody. There was only on the other side of this fence, there was this horse standing there. And now the man became frightened. And he sped down the road. And he ran and he ran and he ran for 20 minutes as fast as he could till he finally got to a filling station. You know. And there you know, and finally he caught his breath and he told the man there what had happened. He says, there was nobody there, nothing but a horse, but I heard a human voice. And this service station attendant then asked, was by any chance the horse black, swayback, and bow-legged? Well, yeah, that's the one, that's the one. Well, don't mind him. <laughs> He's just an old philosopher, dead long ago, but haunting the place. Out of habit, he goes on looking for people to ask questions. You know, He is not the horse. He's just using the poor old horse as a medium of being here. Just don't mind him. You know, well, there are people all over the world, I think, that would flock to hear a horse speak. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> you know, I'd want to hear that. And particularly, I mean, you look at the people that are going to hear Lazarus speak this day and age. They're, they're having seminars, so Lazarus can talk to you and you can ask him questions. Anyway, but if this horse were speaking and it was talking about philosophy and answering these very deep questions about life and also answering the easy questions and even telling, being able to tell a man how to fix an engine even though there were no engines when he was around. But he could do all this. The voice is coming from a very unusual source. So we must needs do what it says, because this is unusual. Hmm? Now, have you looked within yourself enough to know that there is a kind of a voice in you? I mean, it may not speak in so many words, in fact it doesn't, but it can give directions. And it comes from what we could call a very unusual source. It gives answers. It asks questions. But do we listen? Or is it maybe that our old philosophies are managing us? Our old experiences seem to swallow up the new ones and govern them. Something happens, and instead of just letting it happen, we're all of a sudden in a scramble within 
to try to put this new experience in a place where it will seem familiar. We put it in a juxtaposition so that it is now familiar. And this is the familiarity of security. We want to feel secure. It is the function of the ego. It wants to be secure. And in this way, then, of course, because we are doing this all the time, the past haunts us. We get up in the morning, and it's the same world. It's familiar. We eat similar breakfast day in and day out. You know, we do the same thing. Take a shower and comb the hair and put on a face or shave or however. Hmm? We look at the trees, we look at a plant, we look at the grass, and we look at the sky, all seemingly known. Now, what if some morning when you woke up, you know, you're, you're in your old familiar surroundings, you know, but what if you just woke up and went out, to, went to the door, stepped outside, and looked at the sky as if you had never seen it before? You know, if you could see the sky directly rather than through the senses, it would appear very different. We look at things with a past. We do queer things. They're habits. You know? We people. Hmm? When the Buddha was alive, for instance, <clears throat> he was rejected. People rejected him. He tried to change old patterns. Have you any idea of how you cling to an old pattern? No wonder we feel like we're burdened. Old patterns. The Buddha tried to change them, <coughs> to give us <coughs> a new point of view. Hmm? He tried. He's rejected. Then now we have the Buddha dead. <coughs> he is no longer flesh and bones and blood. And so what is it? People say, well, he never falls ill. He never had a sick day in his life. He is never hungry. He could eat a bowl of rice a day or a grain of rice a day, and it was fine. He can do anything. He can walk on water. He can sit in the sky. And he does. There is a festival in China, uh, and uh, I don't know how often they have it, once every 10 years or so. <clears throat> but <clears throat> there, all of a sudden, there is this image of the Buddha sitting in the sky. <clears throat> but with our thinking that he's now he's all long gone you know in our thinking 
and our feeling, we make him something other maybe than what he really was. Huh? We develop higher and higher and higher abstractions until we are lost somewhere in some imagined paradise so that we can meet this Buddha. And we have done the same with Jesus. Hmm? Uh, he tried to change the way people thought about God and themselves. So, do away with him. Yeah. Now, death destroys the body. There's no longer anything we can touch. So this link is broken. But we still have a mental image, an ideal image. It is bloodless and boneless and superphysical. Whatever you want to imagine, you can. You can project any quality, all qualities, whatever you want on this image that you have. Now, this is very difficult to do with a living person, right? Because the reality is present, you know. And more than likely, that person will destroy your projections, or at least try to. <coughs> hmm? Yeah. After all, there is no teacher that I know of that is ready to become a prisoner of your ideas. But dead, what can this teacher do? <laughs> you know. Now you've got the upper hand. You've got the authority. You can do what you want. But a man like a Buddha alive can help you. You can take something in of the presence of this person. No. something of the essence. Something can be communicated just by that person being present, and you know that. But when he's dead, hmm. now what that teacher, let us, for instance, just we talk about Henry, it's easy. You all have met him. and so. What he has to give is not just words. Of course, the words, they do create a contact. You know, the sound of the voice, you know, it's in your ears. You know. And if you're receptive, there is something in the words, something between the words. There is some energy being used, or frequency, if you want that word, you know, so that what is being said can become a living experience. You know, now and then we read something, and what we are reading touches something within us, and then there is this response, you know. And so out of this now comes an experience, you know, more than mental, you know. <clears throat> The response comes about because of your state of consciousness. Your state of consciousness responds to something in the words, this energy used. Hmm? You know, 
about 30 years ago, uh, <clears throat> I was reading a book on philosophy. And it was night. Everybody else had gone to bed, and I was quite alone. I'm sitting there with this book. And I'm reading. And suddenly, you know, this, this rising begins. You know, and then all of a sudden, it's as if I, Lola, am wiped out. And in that experience, when I came back to my body, as it were, which I hadn't really left, you know, but when I am again aware of the senses instead of the other, see, the awareness shifted from the sensate becoming state to a being state, you see. <clears throat> when, I, when I'm back to being Lola again, you see, then I really understood that the Christ was within and nowhere else. It's in here. Hmm? Now, the after image, we could call it, or the glow or the, the light from that experience lasted six weeks. And, um, and I walked around in this tremendous, well, I don't know what you want to call it. it was, I was light, nothing was heavy. Mm. And then it began to fade. And finally it all got dark again. This, this world again. And I wanted that other state back again. So how do you get it back again? So I set up the same situation. At night, everybody else has gone to bed. Same chair, same book, same page. And I read it, dull words, dead dull words. Hmm? There was no lift in them, you know. It is in you and not other than this. You respond or you don't respond. One learns to swim by getting wet, they say. It is the experience that teaches us that this world is not altogether what it seems. Yeah. Spirituality is kind of like swimming, you know. You cannot teach somebody how to swim with your words. But you can talk about it all day long. I can stand here and talk about swimming if you want. You know, I can use a lot of words <coughs> about the religious experience or religions as such. But when it happens, it is not dead, dull words. It is a living experience. Totally alive. You know. We rely here in this sense world so much on our language, on our words, and we say tree, and we're so identified with the word that the minute we say tree, we think we know something about a tree. 
And all we know about a tree is what these eyes have reported. Hmm? You cannot know a tree by word tree. A tree is a marvelous mystery. And we can enter that mystery. We can become great scholars of the Bible. We can think with it and we can spin around with it, saying it means this and it means that and it means the other thing, you know. And every once in a while we should. It doesn't hurt us any. You know, exercise the mind a little bit. There is much for thought in these books. But all the time you must know that just because you can quote from it doesn't mean that you understand it. You understand through the experience that people that, that do read uh, uh, the Bible or read this and they, they stick it in front of them and read and read and read and read, they're creating a theology of their own. They're creating a philosophy of their own and which all of us do, but hopefully we're not trapped in it. Hmm? We should realize what we're doing with our own words. You know, we shouldn't hypnotize ourselves. The, the, the essence of, or the, the, the presence of the individual who inspired the scripture be it Jesus or Buddha or Mohammed or whomever, hmm, is not in these words, is not in the theology that I have developed. I am. So let us be a little careful what we do with my interpretation. If you watch yourself as you read, you will see that the words and your understanding of them are mirrors. You will see yourself in them. You can read anything you like into them. There is not any Jesus or Buddha or Mohammed to say, no, that was not my meaning. You can just pick it up and run. Sometimes I hear somebody quote me here and there. And I wonder sometimes, what do you do with what I say? When you quote, whose meaning are you using? Yours or mine? Yeah. Freud, in the last years of his life, you know, one time gathered about 20 of his disciples around him, and they all went out to lunch. And uh, during this course of this luncheon, they began to discuss certain points that Freud had developed. And uh, they began to discuss 
what maybe he might have meant by certain phrases. And they got so absorbed in what they were doing, they forgot that he was present. No? And here they are. They're arguing, you know, arguing with each other, contradicting each other. One theory and 20 interpretations. Yeah. And finally, Freud just simply hammered on the table and he said, well, one thing, please. I'm still alive. You can ask me what I mean. Listening to you, I can see what's going to happen when I am dead. Yeah. And this, of course, is how sex are born. They don't agree with the original one. So the Amish, who moved away from the Amish people and became another sect? The Mennonites, yeah. They are much more liberal. They, uh, uh, they, they can button their shoes. The other ones have to tie their shoes. Vice versa. Vice versa. Yeah, it could be. I think so. And of course, zippers. Verboten altogether. But we do have, I have heard, 395 different Christian sects in America. All stemming, all these little sects stemming from, I don't agree with you. And there's nobody who knows that can set them straight. Too bad, huh? You know, Jesus was really a very simple man. He was a son of a carpenter, and he was a carpenter. And he spoke simply. I mean, direct to the point. He told stories, little anecdotes, and parables. And look what's come out of it. You know, all the discussing and the arguing. Yet in some cases, I have heard them so much so that the Christ is almost forgotten. It's what he said, what Jesus said now, and the interpretation of it that becomes important. And it's really the other way around. But then, you know, we all, we all want our own way. We all want our nice open road, nice and easy, well delineated, signposts all the way, everything for our convenience. You know, bright lights, nobody on the road but us so we can possibly have an accident. This is what we want. And you know, there was a, a, a missionary station in South Africa <coughs> and this society and they wrote to uh, David Livingston after he had discovered Stanley, you know, and stayed there with him. And uh, they wrote to ask, have you found a good road to where you are? We want to know how to send men to join you. And Livingstone wrote back and he said, if you have men who will only come if they know there's a good road, I don't want them. I want men who will come if they know there is no road. Mm -hmm. And there is no marked road. It is called a pathless path or a wayless way. Yeah. There isn't a signpost on it. There isn't a marker on it. We have to grope around with it and we don't know whether we found it or not unless we have, a, you know, somebody to say, yes, this is okay, no, this is not okay. The, the experiences which will tell you that, yes, you're on the right track. Hmm. 
I mean, it's, it's so simple to get confused with it. <clears throat> you know, the, the Bhagavad Gita, this poem about Arjuna and Krishna, are going to this fight thing. The families are going to fight. And Shankaracharya, he says that this book is a message of renunciation. And there is another teacher that says it is a message of action, which they call karma. Hmm? And Ramanuja, he said that it was a message of devotion, of bhakti. Which one will you choose? All three are correct. There isn't any need to argue. We need to realize that in our own way, we are all philosophers. We all have our theories. We all have our notions about. And of course, we do realize that our notions, of, I hope we realize, that our notions about and our theories about will change when we see the situation directly instead of through the senses. Hmm? What, that we must realize that what we read and what we hear is our interpretation according to our state of consciousness. What you do How you see, how you hear, what you think is your state of consciousness. This is what you're trying to do something about. Mm. <clears throat> you know, there are people in this world that memorize, they, they memorize the Upanishads or they memorize the Bhagavad Gita, and then they think, because they have it memorized, that they're safe from any harm. Nobody's ever going to touch them. Some people keep a Bible in their pocket, pockets, and some people keep a rabbit's foot. Hmm? Some people keep a Bible on their desk, a businessman, huh? And one of the most clever men I've ever known did just that. He would have the Bible there on his desk, and he'd get up to talk to people, and he'd have one hand on the Bible, and he would talk, and you were supposed to know that he would never tell a lie. <clears throat> he would appear so authentic, you know. Well, in this case, of course, he was fooling himself. Too bad, huh? You can own a Bible, you know, but you can't own the Christ. You have to be possessed by him. And he's already there within you. Jesus spoke of the kingdom of heaven, and he said it is within. Why stand ye gazing? When we look at the significance of any words that we hear, where is the significance? 
Hmm? Once in a while, I say something that um, you might think, oh, that's important to me. Why is it important to you? Hmm? You know, the Buddha, after his enlightenment, he taught for 49 years. And he was a craftsman. He really must have been a fabulous teacher, huh? He had uh, uh, 500 monks or 1,500, 500 monks and about as many nuns under the jurisdiction of his wife. And um, a lot of the, the, the monks that he had were scholars, uh, highly placed people, educated people, knowing people in India. But he was a craftsman, and he was making gods of men. You know, our scriptures, the Old Testament says, ye are gods and the scripture cannot be broken. Ye are gods. And we should all be like this Buddha, like a sculptor, hammering away on this stone that we have, this concrete that we have developed, huh? Throwing away all that's essential you chisel and throw it away, chisel and throw it away. And uh, by and by, an inner image is discovered. Hmm? It was there. It is there. It was there before you began to work, before any artist began to work. But the non-essential is there also. And that has to be chiseled away. When we get down to serious business, when we get down to serious business and we cut away that non-essential, then this magnificence is born in us. Hmm. The within, here, and out there, they penetrate each other. It's not that something new has come into this world. It's simply a transformation of seeing that it is all one and it's not all just fragmented into parts. Your state of consciousness changes. You know, we need to, I, I hammer this, we need to be observant. We need to learn to observe what is going on in my world? In the Zodo Zen, you know, they, when they, their meditation is just observing what is going on. Just observing. And we should be able to carry this with us to some extent during the day. Because it is through this practice that one learns to separate the essential from the non-essential. To separate the possession from the possessor. See, the identity from its identifications. We should practice this. 
It comes about so slowly, and we are here so short a time. Meditation is a skill. It is an art. It is a means, and they call it over there, upaya, means. Meditation is the greatest skill in the world. This is how you make a god. Hmm? To make a man. To make a human being. To see the mind, to drop the ego, to allow this ultimate to happen. And all scriptures are fingers pointing. Fingers pointing. They are not the actuality. They point to something in you. You respond to a finger pointing, and something does happen. So we have this little Chuang Tzu story, huh? Duke Huan of Qi, first in his dynasty, sat under his canopy, reading his philosophy. Fien, the wheelwright, was out in the yard making a wheel. And Fien, he laid aside his hammer and chisel, and he climbed the steps, and he said to Duke Huan, May I ask you, Lord, what is it that you are reading? And the Duke replied, the experts, the authorities. And Fien asked then, living or dead? Well, experts and authorities, we have a plenty. Yeah, there's even one. <laughs> right, huh? Which ones will you choose? There is an authority that surpasses any book of directions. Why not go to that? Hmm? You know, people, when they sit, when they begin to sit, and a little later on, it also happens this way because nothing seems to be coming about. I mean, you know, people think, you know, they say, I've heard them. Well, I'll conquer this in six months, you know. Well, they don't realize what meditation is, and of course they have conquered it because they're still the same. They have not allowed themselves to be transformed because they are conquering it all the time. Yeah, but when one sits, there is a wavering. Hardly anyone sits or a couple of years down the road, you know, all of a sudden with a total heart, yeah, no more, huh? One begins with a doubt. And something happens and the doubt is erased, but then nothing else happens and down the road, and boy, have I got a doubt now. Yeah. Huh. There are times in our lives when doubt is extremely important, and there are times when it should be set aside for trust. How about paying attention to trust? Trust should be present even when in doubt. The ego is always going to say, no, 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 no. 
I mean, if this happens, no. Ego is always saying, don't let go. Don't let go. If you let go, you're going to be lost. Well, where are you now? And there are people in this world that enjoy driving. Just driving. Jack sometimes was like, and he get the car and ride all over the county. Some people, well, he didn't do this, he didn't go this extreme. They drive from here to Los Angeles, and then from Los Angeles to San Francisco, and from San Francisco they go to Sacramento, just driving. And there are people who drive from here to New York. They, you know, they'll put an ad in the paper and say, "I'll drive your car," and they drive. And then they're so proud they made it in two days. And so one of this type, he had a job as a chauffeur, naturally. And um, he was show and he worked for a doctor. And he was chauffeuring this doctor one day, and they were supposed to go to a very remote little village. And somebody had drawn a map exactly as they were to go. And so the chauffeur, knowing that they had a time limit, he was going very fast. And he got into the thing, going along this great speed along the highway. And uh, it was supposed to be there by early afternoon. But now he's going down the road, lickety-split, way past the speed limit, just going. And evening is now approaching. And he's driving very fast. Finally, the doctor looks at this map, and he says, it seems to me that we have taken a wrong turn. And the driver looks at him and says, don't bother about the map. We're enjoying the ride, <laughs> you know? And people are like this, you know? They're simply going fast. Life is in the fast lane. Let's enjoy it. Hmm? And in this fast lane, who cares whether you arrive or not? The fun is in the fast lane. Hmm. You just keep moving. You know, it's not by that kind of running that you reach your destiny. No, it's true. Only by reaching for a, the destiny itself are you going to get a grip on it. <clears throat> you know, choose ye this day whom ye shall serve. Always. It says in Kings. Elijah, he had a thing. How long will you limp between two decisions? <laughs> and so you remember Uncle Remus' little story about Br'er Rabbit, which is no longer in existence, the little book. Br'er Rabbit was invited to dinner on the same evening at the same time at Br'er Terrapin's house and Br'er Possum's house. And there he stood at the crossroads, and he was hungry. So, and he's going through this thing. Do I eat with Br'er Terrapin, or do I eat with Br'er Possum? And first he ran down the road to Br'er Possum's. He made up his mind. That's where he was going. And then he changed his mind, and he reversed himself, and he started toward Br'er Terrapin's. And then he changed his mind again, and he started toward Br'er Possum's. And all the time, this idea, this thought, you see, 
of two meals waiting for him. He ran back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, and he was not able to make a decision until finally he missed dinner at both places. How long will you limp between two <laughs> decisions? <laughs> huh? You know, the, the, the sorry part about it is that we have to live with the consequences of our decisions. In the Upanishads, it reads, you are what your deep driving desire is. As your deep driving desire is, so is your will. As your will, so is your deed. As your deed is, so is your destiny. How long will you limp between? And anyway, this Duke in Chuang Tzu's little story says, what do you know about it? You know, you're only a wheelwright. And I may say, I want to interject in here, this is not the attitude of someone who wants to know. You cannot put yourself in an exalted position and the other one down there and say, what do you know? You're nobody. But anyway, the wheelwright says, well, let us look at the affair from my point of view. When I make wheels, if I go easy, they fall apart. If I'm too rough, they do not fit. But if I am, excuse me, neither too easy nor too violent, they come out right. The work is what I want it to be. You cannot put this into words. You have to know how it is. Hmm? Well, of course, extremes never build a wheel, correct wheel. They don't build a correct life either. You just go and remain in the middle. But how can I tell anyone to remain in the middle? Hmm? An actual middle. Not a thought middle, but actual middle. Actual middle is very difficult to find. You know, we could go and, and, and ask a, a tightrope walker, and she did that, you know. He had that in his book. <clears throat> How do you walk a tightrope? How does he do it? What can he tell you? What can he say? He says, well, maybe he'd say something, you know. Well, if I lean too much to the right, then I have to balance and lean toward the, rest, the, toward the left. I have to do this in order to balance. And if I lean in too much to the left, then I have to lean toward the right to balance. See? And so he weaves his way across his tightrope over the abyss. Now, in the actual middle, of course, is deeper than that. So we can say the words... We can think the words, and we can write the words. But this does not get us across. We have to do. We have to be. The consciousness has to be involved, not just thinking it out. 
We have to use the body. We use the mind. We use the whole being to cross. And there isn't any fixed formula. It depends upon the person, upon the weight, upon the height, the wind if you're walking on a tightrope, huh? the golden wind. And the most, you know, it depends on the inner mind, the ability to concentrate, the ability to hold a focus. Hmm? You know, to transcend ourselves in our dualistic states, I often mention the word humility. How do you understand that word humility? Do you think of it as a self-abasement, as if you were inferior? You go around acting inferior to everybody all the time. <clears throat> I hope not. Humility is just as much the opposite of self-abasement as it is from self-exaltation. Humility is the middle it is neither extreme. To be humble is to not make comparisons. And in markings, you know, from Dag Hammarskjöld's book, he says, secure in its reality of humility, secure in its reality, the self is neither better nor worse bigger nor smaller than anything else in the universe. It is. It is nothing, yet at the same time, one with everything. To give to people works, poetry, art, whatever you can contribute, and to take simply and freely what belongs to the true self by reason of its identity. Praise and blame, the winds of success and adversity, blow over such a life without leaving a trace or upsetting its balance. Humility, neither extreme, not rough and violent, nor too easy. Humility, that doesn't make comparisons. Huh? And Meister Eckhart, you know, he used to end his little sermons with the phrase, toward this end, so help me God. Yeah, we could all use a little help. <laughs> and now, may the peace power that passeth all understanding hold us and keep us in the love of the Christed consciousness while we are seemingly separate one from another and I do thank you very much. If you find Lola's talks valuable, more will be posted in weeks to come.